Alan Viard is a resident scholar here at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies federal tax and budget policy. Previously, he was a senior economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas and an assistant professor of economics at Ohio State University. His work has been featured in a wide range of publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Bloomberg. He's here today to discuss the present and future of tax reform. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast again. You are, I think, this is maybe the third or fourth time. Um, uh, Before we get into some of sort of the pressing issues of tax reform, both what's what's sort of the aftermath of the uh, the Trump tax cuts as well as some other tax issues, I want to sort of look ahead a little bit. I, I, I was thinking that if I was put in charge of putting together a blue ribbon panel. On, on taxes, to come up with a tax reform plan that would serve America well over the next decade or two, I think the charge I would give them would be come up with a plan that can raise more revenue than what we're currently raising, but do it in as economically efficient way possible. Yes. Is that what is that is that what is that would that be the goal that you would agree? That with? is the goal. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple. There's one other thing to go with that, of course, is that along with raising the revenue efficiently, we also want to raise it fairly. But yes, I think you've really hit the main points there. Uh, we are going to need more revenue, uh, given the growth of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and health insurance premium credit spending. We know that uh, the budget faces long-term imbalance. I hope, and many people hope, that there will be some restraint of that spending growth and that we can accomplish part of what we need to do uh, on that side of the ledger. However, if you look realistically at the spending pressures that exist and the political support for those programs, we know that revenue increases will have to be part of the picture. So we are looking for more revenue, and we do want to try to raise it in the best way possible, you know, balancing efficiency and fairness. Now, naturally, there's a lot of disagreement as to what the best way to raise revenue is. Do you think it seems it's, it seems recently that the idea that we have to raise more revenue, that these long-term entitlements really pose a real problem, that idea seems to have lost some support. There seems to be less concern about yeah. debt and deficits going forward, and therefore I would imagine there's sort of less interest in coming up with any sort of tax reform plan where at least one of the goals would be to actually raise more revenue as opposed to some other goal, whether it be economic growth or what have you. When you talk to sort of other economists, is that sort of penetrating into discussion that, well, maybe we really just don't need to raise the kind of revenue that we thought we did? Well, I think economists uh, still think largely what uh, we've always thought and that economists still recognize the need for additional revenue. Now, on the political side, I think things have shifted uh, in some ways. Uh, The Democratic presidential candidates are in many cases actually proposing policies that would significantly increase revenue, almost always, of course, by targeting those at the top of the income distribution. Now, at first glance, that might seem like good news on the fiscal front. Someone is actually prepared to address things on one side of the ledger. But I think all of us know that the problem is that at the same time that the candidates are proposing revenue increases, they're proposing very large spending increases, which would swamp any revenue effect. I mean, you look at things like Medicare for all, uh, let alone the Green New Deal, uh, and then a host of other programs such as student loan uh, relief or child care subsidies. We just have a whole array of spending programs being presented. And so any progress that we made on the tax front with those uh, proposals, setting aside the question whether those are good ways to raise revenue or not, any progress you made in bringing in more revenue would be far more than offset by the spending increases. 
Have you heard of any ways, let's, let's stick with raising uh, revenue, raising tax revenue, that sound like good ideas that you think are done in a fair and efficient way? Well, you know, in the past, I've tended to uh, think that we ought to try to shift to a almost completely new tax system, uh, the Bradford X tax, which is a method of taxing consumption that is quite different from the methods that governments have actually used. I still think that actually is an economically appealing way to raise revenue, but I've come to conclude that politically it's unviable, that people don't understand it um, and will not support it. And so I find myself falling back on what is a very old idea and a very common idea, which is to introduce a value-added tax alongside the income tax. All of the other industrialized countries in the world use a value-added tax. Uh, it's reasonably easy to administer, although, of course, every tax has administrative problems. Um, it is somewhat regressive and poses, you know, by itself somewhat larger burdens on low-income groups than on high-income groups. But as many governments around the world have discovered, there are easy ways to address that, that you can give rebates at the low end. And furthermore, you would combine it with the income tax system, scaling back the income tax but bringing in the VAT alongside it. And you can easily come up with a combination, I think, that is reasonable and fair. At the moment, though, there is not very much support for a value-added tax. I mean, that, you know, that seems like a, a, a reasonable uh, way of approaching sort of these long-term issues. But I think you're right. It, just, it feels fantastical right now that that can happen. Yes. Of course, if we're, so what would it take, you think, for that to happen? One thing that would be necessary is a bipartisan agreement. Neither party will ever introduce a VAT on its own. You would have to have Republicans and Democrats coming together. And I think that would happen, first of all, you would have to have divided government as well. Divided government is obviously not sufficient, but it would be necessary. If only one party is in power in both chambers of Congress and in the White House, the other party is not going to make a deal with them. But if you had a situation where the parties were sharing power, and they were willing to work with each other, and they recognized that the fiscal imbalance needed to be addressed, then it really is not, I think, too difficult to see them eventually accepting a VAT. You know, the way a compromise usually works is that neither side gets their first choice, but if it's a good compromise, both sides get their second choice. And that's what would happen here. Democrats would probably say, well, we ideally would like to address the fiscal gap by raising uh, more income tax revenue. But we definitely don't want to do it by dramatically scaling back entitlement growth. So the VAT is an intermediate option that maybe we can live with. Republicans might say, at least in principle, that they would prefer to address the fiscal imbalance by restraining entitlement growth. But they definitely don't want it to be addressed by raising income tax revenues. The VAT, for them too, could be an intermediate option. And that's the kind of arrangement you would see if and when such an agreement emerged, is both sides settling for their second choice. I believe that will eventually happen. Uh, now, you may wonder when, and I wonder when as well. I don't see it in the next five years. I don't think you'll probably see it in the next 10 years. But could you see it in the next 20 years or the next 30 years? I actually think you, you will see that because at some point we'll really run out of alternatives. Right. Well, that, that, that assumes that sort of, sort, of the, sort of the new thinking about that is, is wrong, that in fact the old, that eventually you just can't keep borrowing that. At some point there will well, be, a, yes. be, oh, yes. be a market impact, interest rate impact, currency impact where markets will sort of bring this issue to the table and force the politicians to do something. Yeah, if nothing else happens, a crisis could be what ends up forcing the agreement. That obviously would not be an ideal way for this to happen. 
And if I mean, we you really waited too long. You, you waited, yeah, far too long. And, and a crisis actually may be quite some distance away yet. You know, I think that it's a mistake for some supporters of deficit reduction, though the ones who say, oh, you know, the crisis is about to happen. It's about to happen. We've got to act now. We should act now. So what they're calling for is right. But trying to get people to do that by telling them the crisis is almost upon us is not accurate. And, you know, it's a case of crying wolf because you keep telling people the crisis is at hand and it's not at hand yet. What you want to tell them and what you hope people understand is the crisis will eventually come. And that the sooner we address it before it comes, the better. You know, so I think that, you know, message doesn't always work. Uh, people don't, you know, grasp that uh, there's a long-range issue to be uh, grappled with. Uh, but I still think that's the kind of message we have to convey instead of trying to trick people into thinking that a crisis is at hand. But if we do keep waiting and postponing and procrastinating, yeah, then eventually the crisis will hit us, and then we'll have to address it, which won't be the ideal way to do it at all. What, what, what would that crisis look like? Well, it would probably involve something about uh, – foreign investors being unwilling to buy U.S. Treasury securities to the extent that they have previously done. Interest rates on the Treasury securities uh, would spike. Um, it could be triggered in part by a reduction in the amount of savings being done around the world, uh, which would you know, tend to reduce demand for Treasury securities, perhaps exacerbated by doubt as to whether Treasury will actually comply with all of it, will actually pay all of its obligations. Um, so, and then they'd be associated, of course, with a host of other negative economic events like a falling stock market and so on. So, okay, so let's go, uh, let's kind of, I guess, now, now come back to sort of the present. It seems to me that whenever an economic report comes out, whether it's a GDP report or one of many other economic reports, many, many times it gets viewed through the lens of the 2017 uh, to yeah. Trump tax cuts. And people will say, okay, this, this data point shows the tax cuts are working or that data point shows that they're not, not working. What can you say with any reasonable sense of confidence about the tax cuts and their impact on the economy? What do we think we know at this point? I feel like I'm going to come back with you every six months yeah. for the rest of your life asking well, you this question. And, but and, and, you know, there's a problem, of course, that you can never definitively say with absolute certainty what the effects were, just for the, the well-known reason that we can never say what would have happened if the tax cut had never been adopted. I mean, you, you would have to compare the actual history we're living in with the tax cut in place to an alternative timeline where the tax cut never happened. And so, of course, outside of the science fiction concepts, we can't really observe that alternative timeline. What we try to do, of course, is to make some educated guess about what we would have expected to happen in the absence of the tax cut and then compare it to what we see with the tax cut. Well, I don't think we can tell a whole lot yet. Maybe we can, can say a few things. First of all, it's far too early to really say what the impact of the tax cut will be on wages uh, because the wage effects were never expected to show up uh, in the short run, but instead were expected to occur gradually over time as the capital stock was built up through increased investment in the United States. What we can be looking at now, I think, is whether that investment is happening, because that's the first step in the process that leads to the wage growth. Here, the picture is, I think, somewhat unclear. One might well have thought that slashing the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21 percent, which is clearly a very big drop, and introducing immediate write-offs, so-called expensing, for important types of business property, that those policies would lead to a quick surge in investment in the United States. 
I, I, you know, you never know how quickly these things will happen, but I would have expected that you would see reasonably dramatic effects reasonably quickly. I do think it's fair to say that we are not seeing those effects as quickly as we might have hoped. Investment has been doing reasonably well since the tax cut was adopted. It's been growing at a, at a good pace. However, it was growing at a good pace before the tax cut was adopted, and that is not surprising because we're in the midst of a business cycle expansion. So has the tax cut actually led to more investment happening than otherwise would have happened in the United States? Well, my guess is it has, but it hasn't been a big effect yet. And that raises what I view as the biggest unanswered question at this juncture. Should we conclude that the effects are going to be smaller than many economic models would have suggested, or should we merely conclude that they are going to be slower than those models would have suggested? So in other words, are the big effects still to come, or are they not going to happen? Well, my own view is, to some extent at least, I would still expect uh, significant investment effects to happen, and yes, perhaps the timing is just a bit slower than we might have expected it to be. But we don't know the answer to that, and so we certainly are going to have to wait and see. We do know that taxes are only one factor among many that affect investment. There's a lot going on in the, the economy. Trade war, right the trade war could certainly be a problem. The tax cut may well be boosting investment at the same time that the trade war is shrinking investment, and we're seeing you know, the net effects. Again, we don't know what would have happened in an alternative timeline where, say, we did have the trade war but not the tax cut or vice versa. Would you expect that 10 years down the road that, that there would be a consensus on whether they worked or not? Because it, it seems to me, and maybe you know, you're looking at it at a higher level than I do, it seems like I, you know, we're still fighting over the Reagan tax cuts. Right, what yeah. was the impact of 86? What happened with the Bush, the, the Bush tax cuts? Will there be a, a, a consensus at some point down the road? There won't be a consensus. There may be a narrowing of the range of disagreement. But even that won't really happen for the most part by looking at the macroeconomic data. I mean, yes, 10 years from now, someone can look at the path of investment over the last decade. And that will certainly be time for the tax cuts to have done whatever they're going to do. But how many other events would have happened in those 10 years? How many new trade wars will there be? Uh, I mean, how many, you know, policy actions by the Federal Reserve, how many regulatory changes. Loosening cycles. Yeah, I mean, so, but but here is what the kind of evidence that may yield some degree of partial agreement. And that's looking at more microeconomic data. So we know that the tax cut was more favorable towards some type of business property than others. So economists can and undoubtedly will do studies looking at how those different categories responded. And that's closer to a controlled experiment because a lot of the general economic events that are going on at the same time would have affected all those types of property. Maybe not in absolutely equal ways, but it would have affected all of them. And if we can actually find patterns in different types of investment that line up with different degrees of relief given by the tax cut, then you would have a basis for concluding that the tax cut was actually causing some of the investment effects. On the other hand, if you did not find those effects lining up, that would be evidence against the tax cuts having an effect. So so where would you expect really to see an impact? Well, so equipment is expensed under the uh, tax cut, which means that you can write off the full cost in the first year. That benefit was not given to structures. And so you would look at equipment versus structures. The corporate sector received a very large rate cut. Part of the non-corporate sector, the businesses that are set up as partnerships and such not, 
um, did get a tax write-off of their own, but it doesn't apply to all sectors of the uh, non-corporate economy. And so once again, you could look to see if there's a differential effect if the corporate if corporate investment went up by more than non-corporate investment. Right. That's the kind of thing you'd be looking at. So this sounds like this is like you know, for the next five, ten years, this is going to be a big part of your sort of scholarly research. Maybe well, maybe not mine personally, but but that, right? but certainly, but certainly for the public finance economist profession as a whole, yes, there are economists who are just very sharp at doing that type of empirical work. It's nitty gritty work, uh, but it's very valuable, and it takes time for the data to to do those studies to become available, and then time for the studies to be done and to go through the peer review process. But eventually, we'll start to see some results. Uh, of those types of investigations, and we can reach some degree, uh, we can reach some kind of verdict, I think, on the tax cut. Now, there's been some talk uh, in these Democratic primaries as these as the candidates sort of release their plans. Uh, nobody likes these tax cuts. Uh, some have talked about repealing them completely, which I guess means taking that corporate tax rate back up uh, to 35%. Care to Give me an idea well, I don't what think, the impact uh, of know, that would be. Well, yeah, I don't think the Democrats actually will do that. And some of the rhetoric that, that some of the candidates have used is somewhat imprecise. It's never clear or it's often not clear whether they're objecting to all of the 2017 tax cut or whether they're merely saying that it you know, needs to be, uh, I don't know, repealed and replaced as opposed to just repealed. Uh, it's hard to, to know in many cases. I would be very surprised if a Democratic Congress and president took the corporate tax rate back above 28 percent. Um, it will depend, I'm sure, on who the Democratic president is and what the margins of control are in the, the chambers of Congress. And I, I guess I, you know, it does look like the Democratic Party is going further to the left now than you might have expected you know, some time ago. But um, 35 percent was a very high rate by international standards. I mean, that's actually putting it mildly. Um, when you add in the 4% average state corporate income tax, we were at 39, and that was the highest rate in the uh, developed world, the third highest in the entire world. And to go back to that, I think, really does not make the United States very competitive. So you often see proposals, um, at least among Democratic policy analysts, for things like going to 25% or to 28%, accompanied perhaps by measures to make the corporate base broader. So the corporations are paying tax on more income, as well as at a somewhat higher rate than 21, but not going all the way back to I know in the past you've, you, you've sort of pitched the idea of you know, maybe dramatically – even though most people, it seems like we've just dramatically lowered the corporate tax rate. Maybe we lower it further, but then maybe we offset that with a, a higher capital gains tax rate. When you talk to people, is there any interest in that idea? Since it seems to really make a lot of sense. It, it seems like a very good trade-off to most economists uh, that taxing – the capital gains and dividends of American shareholders is less economically harmful than taxing investment done inside the United States. Uh, the difference being between the two taxes being that the tax on the dividends and capital gains doesn't depend upon where the corporation invests its funds. You'd be taxing the American shareholders of those companies regardless of where the investment happened. So it would not drive capital out of the United States and it would not drive down wages. 
Uh, it also would not encourage uh, so-called inversions or efforts to do profit shifting where you book profits into tax havens. So a lot of those harmful consequences don't arise if you're taxing the dividends and capital gains instead of the corporate uh, profits. Now, you might discourage saving by Americans if they're paying more taxes on dividends and capital gains. So obviously, there's always some issue with any tax. Um, it, how much interest is there in it? It's not clear politically that the idea has gotten much attention. Uh, some of the Democratic candidates are certainly talking about raising capital gains and dividend taxes, but of course they're also talking about raising the corporate tax, right. at least relative to the 21%. So the idea of that trade-off doesn't seem to have taken hold. You know, one of the um, interesting parts of the uh, of the Trump tax cuts, a lot of fo- a lot of focus on that corporate tax rate, but also the cap on the state and local tax uh, deduction. Which is, which is a tax on upper middle class people, wealthier Americans. But there seems to be an interest among people who you would think would be for that in, in, in reversing uh, that cap. Yeah, it's really drawn strong opposition from a lot of Democrats. And it does kind of uh, scramble things up politically because at least the uh, direct tax increases resulting from that change do fall on higher income people the rich and the upper middle class. Um, And so you would think, well, the Democrats should not be as concerned about uh, those groups uh, as they would be about groups further down the income scale. Now, I think the Democrats would have a a counter argument to that. They would say that because you have this cap in place, it makes it more expensive for state and local governments to raise their taxes and increase their spending programs because the people who are paying those taxes don't get as much tax relief at the federal level. So we'll stiffen their resolve against having those state and local taxes. Indeed, Republicans hope that's what happens. Well, that's right. That actually was a very conscious goal by the Republicans. They said the old arrangement where you had an uncapped deduction really artificially encouraged the growth of state and local governments. And so in some sense, they were trying to change that. And that's what the Democrats do not want to see. And they would argue, well, the cap indirectly will hurt lower income people because state and local governments will end up doing less spending on their behalf because they'll have less tax revenue, because they won't be able to get support for raising taxes, because the people who are paying the taxes won't get a federal deduction on the margin. But, you know, it really has has had a, a significant impact in the high-tax states, states like California and Connecticut and New York and New Jersey and Maryland. And those states are fighting uh, to try to either get around the cap or to try to have it repealed by Congress, or at least not extended when it expires in 20, at the end of 2025, um, or, and have even filed a lawsuit arguing that the cap is unconstitutional, an argument that I think has no merit at all, uh, but a legal argument. And, but, and, but as an economist, do you, li- I mean, do you like this cap? I think the cap does make sense. This actually is a tricky issue, and anybody who says it's a simple uh, way to think about it, I think, is probably uh, mistaken. But I don't think that there is a strong argument that the federal government, by providing a state and local tax deduction, should try to subsidize the growth of state and local government in general over and above the subsidies that the federal government already provides to numerous state and local government programs through specific grants. So, for example, the, the Congress has decided that Medicaid should be administered at the state level and that it's desirable to have Medicaid be bigger than any given state would choose if they were picking up the full tab. And I think Congress is actually right uh, uh, to, to think that. Um, and therefore, states that spend money on Medicaid, the federal government pays a significant portion of the cost, anywhere from 50% to almost 80%. So there, Congress has picked out a specific program and said, we want to encourage its growth. Once you've done that, 
for numerous different state programs that you think are deserving. Does it really make sense to have an additional subsidy that's to have state and local governments raise more money and spend it on any programs they, that they wish? And it's not clear why the federal government should encourage that. Uh, another tax issue, which is sort of very, uh, a live issue, is the uh, Cadillac health insurance tax, which is a 40% tax on high-cost employer health plans. Uh, also, a not, a not, a not a particularly popular tax. Uh, there's an effort in Congress to get rid of it. But economists like this tax. Politicians do not like this tax. Yeah. Politico uh, recently commented that economists seem to be the only constituency <laughs> that supports the tax. And since economists comprise a pretty small proportion of the American population, that doesn't bode well for the tax's uh, political future. But there's not much There's not much in um, the tax code that you know restrains costs or the right. I mean, that restrains costs. This is like the one thing. Yeah. So what we have, we start from an income and payroll tax system where you pay tax on the cash wages that your employer gives you, but you don't pay tax on a lot of fringe benefits, including health insurance. And so that clearly encourages health insurance over cash wages. Now, you may say, well, that sounds like a good idea because it helps people get more, more people be insured. Well, yes, if that's all it was doing, that would be quite arguably a, a good thing. But if you just wanted that, you would put some kind of cap on the amount of health insurance that w- that people uh, could get this tax break for. You wouldn't give it to the high-end so-called Cadillac plans, which cover routine care and which encourage people to utilize a lot of medical care and drives up costs for everyone. So the most direct solution to this would be to change the income and payroll tax rules, to say that if the health insurance is high cost, you would actually have the employees pay individual income and payroll taxes on the excess um, insurance. The Cadillac tax is a somewhat clumsy substitute for that. The tax is officially collected from the insurance companies, which is an effort to hide the fact that the burden ultimately falls on the workers getting the health insurance. And so it'd be better if you collected it directly from the workers to be more honest and more transparent. And having this 40% flat rate doesn't really make that much sense either. But nevertheless, the basic oper- the basic purpose of the Cadillac tax is sound, that it is a way to offset or cancel out that tax break for the high-end plans. And so it's really a desirable step compared to doing nothing. If you had a better designed replacement, fine. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's good as far as it goes. Unfortunately, um, you know, the, both Republicans and Democrats have lined up against the tax. Now, there was a new letter similar to one distributed four years ago, signed by approximately 100 economists, myself among them, and seven other economists and residents at AEI. And we argued that the Cadillac tax should be kept until and unless it's replaced by a better designed uh, measure. Uh, but once again, it's falling on, on deaf ears. Um, the tax has not yet taken effect. It's been postponed twice, scheduled That's to take effect in 2022. But uh, just last month, the House voted to repeal the tax before it takes effect. And that was a vote of 419 to 6. So the Senate has not yet acted on the repeal bill, but there's a good chance they will act on it this fall. And if they do act on it, I don't think it's too hard to guess which direction the vote is going to go. More than 60 senators actually have signed on as sponsors of a separate bill that would repeal the Cadillac tax. Uh, another big tax issue, which is sort of brewing, which you know may get a lot bigger as the year uh, goes on, is indexing the capital gains tax, which the administration wants to do, I guess, by executive order, since it couldn't get through a, uh, a divided uh, Congress. One, um, is that legal, to the best of your knowledge? And two, uh, is there an economic argument for doing that? Yeah, so the question of whether it's legal um, is something that legal scholars disagree about. I'm not a legal scholar, so I guess I shouldn't weigh in definitively on it. 
when I read the articles pro and con on this, it certainly leaves me with grave doubts that the administration would have the legal authority. But there are some people who think that it does. The issue is whether uh, the administration can redefine the word cost as it's used in the Internal Revenue Code. When you sell an asset like a share of corporate stock, you pay tax on your sale proceeds minus your cost. The idea is that the cost, back you know, however many years ago you paid it, you would adjust that upward to account for the inflation that's occurred since then. So if you paid $10 to buy the stock years ago, but prices have doubled since then, it's like paying $20 today. And economically, it's equivalent to having paid $20 today. And so the argument is that we're going to count your cost as $20. And the legal question is whether when the Internal Revenue Code says cost, is that an ambiguous term that could mean inflation-adjusted cost and that, therefore, the administration could interpret to mean inflation-adjusted cost? Or does it unambiguously mean the cost expressed in dollars? Well, I think in context, it sounds like the cost expressed in dollars because that's how everything else in Internal Revenue Code works. Right. But legal scholars do disagree. I would say this, though, that even if this is within the outer limits of the administration's authority, it would be wrong for the executive branch to make this kind of policy change without going to Congress for its approval. Congress, through the years, has refused to inflation index the calculation of capital gains taxes. It has adopted other measures, like a lower capital gains rate, that are intended, at least in part, to compensate for the fact that there is no inflation adjustment. And so if the administration now comes in and says by fiat that we're going to do the inflation adjustment, but still leaving in place the other measures that Congress adopted, they've really upset the kind of delicate compromise that Congress struck and put their own policy into place rather than the policy that the nation's elected lawmakers have adopted. So I think it would be undemocratic for the administration to do this on its own, even if it might by some chance happen to be legal. Uh, and would it be a good or bad economic idea if, if your goal, I guess, is to increase investment, which I'm, I'm guessing is the, would be the economic rationale? That is the economic rationale, and it presumably would increase investment to some extent. But if it was done the way that the supporters are talking about, it would also increase tax sheltering. Because it's not just capital gains that aren't adjusted for inflation. When you pay tax on interest income, you don't account for the fact that some of that interest income offsets inflation as well. You know, I earn 4% interest, not that anybody can really do that these days, and inflation is 2%. Only 2%, you know, is real to give me extra buying power. But we don't adjust interest income, and we don't adjust interest expense when people take out business debt and deduct that interest. So if you adjusted the capital gains but not the interest expense, it would become very profitable from a tax standpoint to borrow money and to invest in assets that yield capital gains. And so I think you'd see a lot of tra shuffling around of assets and paper transactions that would basically amount to tax shelters. If inflation indexation makes any sense at all, two things should be done. First, it should be adopted by Congress in the way that the framers expected major tax policy changes to be made. And second, it should apply to interest income and interest expense, as well as capital gains. So you can certainly make a case for that kind of policy. Although, frankly, with today's low inflation rates, I'm not sure it's worth bothering with. Those kinds of inflation adjustments are actually pretty complicated, more complicated than you think when you start dealing with things like partnerships. And so at today's low inflation rates, I'm just not sure that it's all that attractive of a policy, even if you actually met both of the conditions I just mentioned. 
So, so to wrap up, given given what we were just talking about, that it, it turns out that it's it's really not so easy to raise taxes on on people, even on on upper middle class, wealthier people. There's a lot of pushback. We uh, you have sort of you know you have legal limitations. What does the next sort of big tax reform look like? I mean, what uh, either you know on the center right or center left? What are people talking about? Where do you think happens next? If this was we saw in uh, 2017. Uh, big tax reform. What's the next one? Well, I don't think anything is going to happen before the next election. And then what happens after the election depends on who wins it, I think. I mean, if the Democrats do take power in both chambers of Congress and the White House, I think you would expect them to move forward on some measure that would increase taxes on high-income people. I don't know if you'd see something as unprecedented as you know, Elizabeth Warren's uh, wealth tax, but you certainly would probably see some increases in marginal individual income tax rates, some increase in the corporate income tax rate, uh, some increase in estate and gift taxes. If the Republicans are in control... What's the, what's the next big Republican? I mean, her, 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 I mean, getting that uh, corporate tax rate down from 35 to 21, that, that accomplished a big sort of Republican. Yeah. So what, you know, what, I haven't heard much about the flat, flat tax lately. What's the next sort of big idea? Is it? it does, I'm earn? not sure the Republicans really have any. One focus that they will need to turn to, I think, is whether is extending the provisions of the 2017 tax cut that are scheduled to expire at the end of 2025. The corporate rate cut is permanent. But uh, some of the other, but the individual provisions generally expire at the end of 2025. The uh, special expensing for equipment that we talked about earlier, you know, that phases out um, even earlier than, than 2025. Uh, and so that, I think Republicans would want to extend that. The Republicans also built in a surprising number of tax increases on the corporate side that are scheduled to take effect around 2022 or 2023. Uh, Three big provisions that affect multinationals are scheduled to become more severe around then. The the limit on how much interest businesses can deduct is scheduled to become significantly tighter uh, around then. And so, uh, oh, oh, and uh, research and development spending, which is expensed today, ironically is scheduled to lose that status, that you would have to write it off over a five-year period um, starting in 2022. So, you know, the opposite of what they, they did for equipment. Um, and so I don't know whether Republicans really want those provisions to take effect or not. They wrote them into the law in 2017. It limited the revenue loss from the tax cut. But I think a lot of people expect that as that time approaches, the businesses that are affected will start to lobby Congress to do away with those increases before they happen. And so that's something that uh, Republicans would need to address if they were in power. Are there any, are there any sort of big old-fashioned tax cut ideas floating around? I mentioned, I mentioned almost certainly half seriously the flat tax, but whether it's expanding the uh, child tax credit or or EITC, or a payroll tax cut, or do any? Do you hear those ideas being mentioned uh, at all? Some of which maybe maybe more middle class. Yeah. Here, given sort of the changing composition of the Republican Party sort of voter base, or I don't see a. As far as I've heard, I've not seen a big push by Republicans for those types of measures. They might be willing to support them if they were proposed, and. You know, some of the Democratic candidates are talking about middle class tax cuts. I guess Senator Kamala Harris is the prime example. Yeah, one, yeah. I mean, she has a big middle class tax cut that can be viewed as really dramatic expansion of the EITC. 
So, you know, say if she were to take office or if another Democrat were to take office and to put a middle class tax cut of that type forward, there might well be, you know, Republican interest in agreeing to that. And you could see something like that being adopted. Now, people would disagree on whether that's a better or worse tax cut than the 2017 tax cut. They would both have one thing in common, of course, which is that they add to the deficit and make the fiscal imbalance uh, bigger. My guest today has been Alan Viard. Alan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. City Sky Cup.